As we look at verses in the Bible that you're looking at, verses that you've been searching, verses that people globally have been searching, we'll find over the next few weeks some interesting challenges. Because it's not what you might automatically think, or at least what I might automatically think, that it's just the simple stuff. It's the stuff that's always encouraging. A number of the verses we're going to look at that are the top trending verses in 2022 and the first part of 2023 are verses that challenge us, challenge our life, challenge our direction, challenge how we're going to live and how we approach and how we deal with a society that has continually moved away from godly principles and moved away from the things that would be, as this passage of Scripture describes, holy, acceptable, and the good things that God approves of and pleases. And today's verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, is one of those challenges because it challenges us to step into a relationship with Christ in faith, receiving his mercy, but not just simply to sit back and enjoy that mercy, but to look at and investigate and to target our lives to strategically and tactically move our lives into a position to make a difference. And in making that difference, Know that we are living a life led by God and pleasing to God. So let's go to Romans chapter 12. Let's go to verse 1. We talk first about the mercy of God. The Apostle Paul wrote Romans chapter 12. And in writing this book called Romans because it was written to the church in Rome, he has laid out the course in the first 11 chapters of why we believe, what we believe, and now in chapter 12, he transitions and begins to talk about how that belief impacts everyday living. He's explained everything about our sinfulness. He's explained the law in the first 11 chapters and how that law has created for us this barrier we, we hit against to remind us we need the forgiveness of God. He's explained how that forgiveness was made available in the Old Testament through the sacrifice of animals and how that shed blood covered over the sins of the people. And he's explained how Jesus becomes that sacrifice for us, how Jesus' death on the cross enabled us to be in relationship with God. As he says in classic passages like in chapter 3 and in chapter 6, knowing that we are all sinners, we have Every single one of us sinned and we, every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. But as in chapter six, while we were still enemies of Christ, while we were enemies of God, he gave Christ for us and the sacrifice of Christ enables us to be in relationship with him. The process of knowing Jesus and being in relationship with Jesus and accepting the forgiveness Jesus has for us gives us the opportunity now to look at, examine, and motive, be motivated to live our lives in a way that demonstrates that reality. And so when he comes to this part of the letter, as he's writing, he's explained everything about salvation, everything about faith, everything about the love of God, and he comes to this concluding statement in verse one of chapter 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and the perfect will of God. He says all this great news that we've just received of how I can find forgiveness in a relationship with Jesus, how I can trust Christ, invite him into my life and find forgiveness, now enables me to live in light of that mercy. Because the case he's built up into chapter 12 is a case that makes it clear that I do not deserve salvation, I do not deserve forgiveness, my sin has separated me from God, that sin is permanent and damaging and wounding to the point of absolute separation from the holiness of God. But God's love creates absolute redemption or forgiveness, it creates absolute rescue for us and brings us back into a healed and restored relationship with him. God created us in his image, desiring for us to know him, to be with him, and to have that relationship with him. And in having that relationship with him, to live within his mercy. And now in chapter one, he says we live in that favor. We are living in favor as believers, as Christians. We are living in God's favor, in light and in view of the mercies of God. And so it begins with this understanding, the expectations placed on me, living in a designed and fashioned manner after the purpose and the will of God stems out of the mercy of God. So many of us understand that salvation is by God's grace. We can't earn it. We can't make it happen. We can't posture ourselves properly. It is only by God's grace. I understood that as somebody that had no religious background. I, I already knew there was no doubt. When I heard verses and my friends talked about being a sinner, there was no doubt in my mind. I knew I needed God's mercy. I knew I needed God's grace. But Satan's attempt to derail us quickly causes us to release the grace, to release the mercy, and somehow assume now that I'm a believer, I'm going to be able to live this life by my own actions, by my own efforts, by my own design. And so while I could never do anything to warrant the salvation or the forgiveness or the love of God, somehow as Christians, we shift in our minds and we, and we forget, I couldn't earn this in the first place. Why in the world would I possibly come to church this morning under a weight and a burden of obligation to try to keep it by the same work and activity and earning that it wouldn't get it in the first place. If you couldn't earn a relationship with God, you can't earn and keep a relationship with God. We live in view of the mercies of God. God, Jesus says, holds us in his hand. The heavenly father holds us tight, unmovable. Over and over again in scripture, we're taught Old Testament and New Testament that it is the mercy of God that moves and works and enables and rescues and secures us. John in his old age would write that if you know Christ, you have eternal life. If you don't know Christ, you don't have eternal life. He didn't say, if you know Christ and now that you know Christ, you do all the right things and you check mark all the right things, somehow you'll be perfect. Because 
Perfection only comes in heaven by the grace of God. So before the Apostle Paul introduces the rest of his letter about ethical living, he reminds his audience, and it's important that we remember today, ethical living is as a result of the mercy of God, in view of God's mercy. We are living in favor. We, we understand how deeply loved we are, and that compels, and that motivates us. Not because we're going to earn something, but because we've already been given something. In view of God's mercies. So in a sense, just take a deep breath of air and just relax a little bit. Not too much. You might fall asleep. And just stop for a moment and say, I am here not because I have to be. I am here not because I've got to check something off to make God pleased with me. God was pleased with me before I ever got here. And any decision I make today any recalibration of my life and my future, any adjustments in my trajectories, any, any, any windage and elevation changes I make for my future are made because God loves me, not because I'm trying to make him love me. He loves you perfectly and exactly as you are. And now he wants you to live out of that favor, out of that love, in a fashion that brings about a clear distinction of who we are. And it doesn't involve a uniform or a name tag. It involves a lifestyle, a Christian lifestyle. And I would go one step further to advocate, as we are in this hashtag tending, trending series, that it is a biblical lifestyle. In view of God's mercy, I urge you to present your bodies, to present your life as a living sacrifice. Now, he's just talked all about the sacrifices and how that old sacrificial system brought forgiveness to the people. But how Jesus, in a once and for all moment, did away with that sacrificial system and was the one sacrifice that accomplished everyone's forgiveness as soon as they trust him in that moment. And so there is no longer any need for priestly rituals and for sacrifices because Jesus fulfilled and accomplished all of it on the cross once and for all. And so now we are presenting our lives as a living sacrifice to God to honor him and to begin a process of distinction that sets us apart. Not because we're hoping to be forgiveness, not, not because we're hoping to receive that forgiveness and move into eternity. No, because we know we're living in view of God's mercies and as a result, we want to give our lives to Christ as holy and pleasing to God. And this becomes our true worship. We give our lives. Holy is a word that most of us think we understand. We sing it without hesitation and we talk about it. It even gets used in profanity. Holy. Holy simply means set apart. 
Paul's still got that old animal sacrifice system in his mind and he's thinking through it and he remembers how the sacrifices and the process of worship as the priest would come before God hoping and wanting to satisfy the fury and the justified wrath of God to find mercy. How in that system, the sacrifices were carefully picked, carefully set apart so that we, the recipients of that sacrifice, would also be holy and set apart. It was for the cleansing of the people. Now, if Jesus accomplished all of that on the cross, then that is a done and it is accomplished and it is finished. So the requisite for us is now to live in such a way that it's obvious we are a forgiven people. To be a living sacrifice, to give our bodies to the cause of Christ, to give our lives to the cause of Christ, is to be wholly set apart. And it is to be pleasing, enjoyed by God. Which is huge. Because it's not just a matter of I'm going to do this, do this, do this, do this, and hope I get promoted to heaven. It is a matter that I have already been accepted fully into God's family And now I desire with all of my heart to do anything that reflects the nature of that family and reflects the nature of the father of that family and lives as if I am looking forward to being with that family. It becomes not obligation, but it becomes identity. It becomes who we are and how Christ is working through us. And so making the effort... And in varying degrees, that effort is difficult to come to church. If you're older, it's difficult to get everything together and make sure everything's fine so that you can be in Bible study and be at church. If you're younger, especially if you have kids, it's difficult to get everything gathered up to get all the pieces in the right place and all the equipment in the right place and and then get everybody here and then get them to the right spots. And even half the time after you do that, you're not 100% sure you've gotten them to the right spots. and, And it's work. I mean, if somebody says to you, it's easy to go to church on Sundays, I'm going to go out on a limb and say they haven't tried it lately. (laughs) It's, It's not easy. If you're a guest with us, we have a not easy set of circumstances in order to find us. It's a, it's just, it's not easy. We try and we work strategically to make it easier, but it's not And so something as simple as getting together with other Christians to worship becomes difficult. But in view of God's mercy, I am not doing it now because I'm obligated, because God's taking some kind of supernatural attendance in heaven. I am doing it because I want to, in my life, be distinctive in who I am as a follower of Christ, and I want the opportunity to please God, and God makes it clear throughout all of Scripture that he just loves it when we're together. He, he just loves it when we sing. He just loves it when we talk about him. He just loves it when we share information about him and when we talk about our family and other places, he's pleased. But not out of some sense of obligation. It's not that the boss is watching. It's that he enjoys it. The imagery of scripture in many ways is much like what many people have experienced in a family. 
Think of the grandfather, for instance, who in the midst of a family reunion just sits in a chair because maybe it's hard to stand and maybe physically it's hard to move around and he sits there and he just sits there and smiles. It's not just because he has dementia and can't remember anything and thinks everything's perfectly fine. No, he is smiling because the activity of the family brings joy. I personally believe with all my heart, God loves coming to church here. He shows up every Sunday. I learned a hard way during COVID that he shows up even when we don't show up. Not in the building, but for the people. Because let me tell you what, the people make all the difference in the world in the building. The building is simply a tool. The building is something we use to make something supernatural happen. It's the venue, we invite one another to come together and be in God's presence. Now, his presence is with us all week long. He's going to be with you when you go to school tomorrow, except you guys aren't going to school tomorrow. So he'll be with you when you sleep late and when you harass your parents tomorrow who are stressed because they had to go to work or should have gone to work and they don't know what to do with you. I mean, he's with us regardless of the moment. And that makes us distinctive. We give our lives as a living, a very active sacrifice, not because we're obligated, but because we've been touched and changed and accepted and loved. And now we are not the least bit ashamed to acknowledge who we are, that we are Christians, we are followers of Christ, we are believers and practicers of the Bible. We're not ashamed of that because it changed who we were when we met Jesus. And now we want to live distinguished and, and set apart, pleasing to God, which is the purest form of worship, enjoying him. And it moves us then to continue to live in that transformation. Paul says in verse two, he, he strikes this example for us to live with a sense of excellence. Do not be conformed to this age, but transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern, that is simply make good decisions. Look at the alternatives, look at the directions, look at the past so that you may discern what is good pleasing, and the perfect will of God. Because God's will for our life is good. It, it makes our lives healthier. It gives us purpose. It gives us, it gives us clearer and understanding identity. Before I knew Christ, it would have made no sense at all if you had said to me, you were created in God's image. He loves you exactly the way he created you. That made no sense to me. But I met Jesus in April I went to class in February. I mean, excuse me, can't even, that was kind of backwards, wasn't it? Let me restate that. I met Jesus in April. I went to class in September, and my biology professor said to me, you know what? You're just goo. You're just goo. You are just junk found on the feet of Captain Kirk. And I sat there. And I don't always do this, but I was, I was pretty zealous in the beginning. I raised my hand and said, sir, 
This is a class in my university, Biology 101, the beginning biology class required of all of us, even if we were business majors and never going to use it the rest of our lives, all of us were required to be there. I raised my hand in front of two or 300 students and said, sir, I just became a Christian last spring. I am not an accident. I am the creation of God. Sometimes God's in those moments. The professor questioned me and I questioned him and then another Christian student stood up and said, sir, for this class to be truly inclusive, we should hear the biblical perspective on creation. He wasn't happy, and so he looked at me and said, then you're the new one, you think you know this, you teach class next Tuesday. As about a six-month-old Christian, I stood up and taught the theory of creation as opposed to evolution to two or 300 college students. It seemed like 3,000 at the time. <laughs> That's because God had changed my life. This, this transformation led me to a good place where I, I now knew for the first time who I really was and nobody was defining that for me because of culture. God had defined it the moment he ingeniously, before I was even conceived, said, I want James to be a part of this world. And I'm going to let him be born. And I'm going to know him. And I'm going to work with him. And when he's upset me, and when he's done everything just absolutely wrong, I'm going to give my son for him so that he can be forgiveness, so that he can live his life in excellence, knowing my goodness, pleasing and working with me because my will is perfect. And I will walk with him. You know, and I don't want to depress anybody this morning. It didn't, life didn't become easy. In many ways, it became much more complicated. But never once in this experience have I ever been let down and has the Holy Spirit ever abandoned me or forsaken me. He has always, always been there. There is no more excellent life than the life of a follower of Jesus. Because we're living in view of God's mercy. It doesn't mean we don't still have to pray and figure things out. We do. I got a text this morning. We have a group, we have a collaborative group we started a couple of years ago called Church and Tomball. The pastors get together every month. We pray together. Every month we're, 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 we're interacting with one another, helping one another through difficulties as well as successes. And I, got a, I got a text this morning from this pastor. If I can get past YouTube. He texts me at 6.30 in the morning, which I don't appreciate. <laughs> but he's, he's one of those morning guys. John chapter 12, verse 32 through 33. The first words I saw this morning. And I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus' quote. John clarifies it and says in verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And then he challenged me. He said, may we lift up the name of the one lifted up for us. And may he draw people to himself. I thank the Lord for you this morning. How can I pray for you and your family? And then he says, for me, pray that I would know and do God's best. That's a seasoned pastor. And his prayer request for me this morning was to know and do God's best. Not because he's hoping to earn God's affection today. He knows God's affection. 
And as a result, he wants to do the right thing today and with his life. He wants to live with excellence, not being conformed to this age and all of its misconceptions and lies, but transformed by the renewing of our minds and our hearts in Christ, able to discern, able to know, able to differentiate that which is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You cannot go wrong today if you follow Jesus. Let's bring our band back up. Let's worship together as transformed people, giving our lives to Christ, not out of obligation, but out of respect and out of love, out of having been cared for and wanting to care. Father, thank you for loving us. And thank you that in our, when we were in our imperfections, all of our mistakes and all of our messes, you never stopped loving us. You knew us before we were even born. You knew what you wanted to see happen and you also knew the mistakes and difficult moments along the way. You've never stopped loving us. You gave your son so that we might know that love that we might find in Jesus forgiveness for our sins and a purpose for our lives. And so today we let the words of the Apostle Paul echo throughout history, inspired by you, and cement them in our hearts. We're yours. We know how great your mercy is. We're giving our whole lives to you, whatever you want us to do. Work in us and help us to distinguish, understand, and live a life according to your good and perfect will.